as we look to the Lord together now in prayer. And our Father, as we're coming into your presence, we're coming into your presence having pondered now what has just been read to us, knowing that you have expressed yourself through your word. We're not dealing with human opinion. We're not dealing with cultural traditions. We're dealing with what matters most. We're dealing with who matters most. Jesus. Now, Father, as we gather together in these various services today, we, we know there are some that are going to come who are spiritually curious, very interested in things that matter the most, but have not entered into a personal relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Pray that as we look at this musical composition today that their hearts are going to be stirred with faith and trust in Jesus. There are going to be others that are extraordinarily religious. And they know a lot about you, but yet, but yet they don't know you. I pray that you will break down the religious walls that stand between that individual and you. And there will be a dynamic personal relationship that comes by putting faith and trust in Christ. Maybe it's the secularist. And now they're connecting on live stream. I pray, Lord, that your word is going to penetrate their mind. Maybe they've got intellectual questions. But they're honest. They're open. He or she claims to be open-minded. We pray they'll be open-minded about what matters most. The one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So, Father, we're going to be dealing with a wide range of people, including those who are further on the full spectrum of discipleship that love you and are already leading others to you, who are leading others to you. We run across the board, Father, and you meet us all at our point of need. So, Father, these moments together are incredibly important as we explore your word together. So now, Father, what we're praying once again is that you would warm these hearts, to engage these minds, to shape these wills. <clears throat> As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's spend a little more time with the ladies that we met last week, whose pictures now appear on the screen. And as you look at them, you have join me, and we've made our way southwest out of Jerusalem. Oh, 15, 20 minutes or so. You, know, you got off your bus, and now, lo and behold, you and I, we're together. We're in the courtyard of what's known as the Church of Visitation. Church of Visitation. And the outskirts of Jerusalem, known as Ain Karam. Now, the Church of Visitation is dedicated to the place, the point where Mary, who has just found her, she is with child, is making her way southward from Nazareth towards Jerusalem, where she will meet up with Elizabeth. It's an extraordinary scene, because Elizabeth, the older of the two, is 
with child, and that child is known as John the Baptist. He is the forerunner, the forerunner to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The younger lady is Mary, and she bears the Messiah and Jesus Christ. And so Mary has taken this very difficult route, you see, or you say route. I still don't know which it is, route or route, but whatever, you know the, what I'm getting at. And they've, she's made her way now to the outskirts of Jerusalem, where she is now face-to-face -face with her relative, Elizabeth. And as we explored last week, what we found is that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And when given an interpretation of that in verse 44, we noted last week, we're told that Elizabeth said, For behold, when the sound, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So now as we look at this scene, what strikes us right away is that, and of course we drew this out, the Greek word brephos, same word that's used for a child within the womb and the child outside the womb. And furthermore, what we found was that within the womb of Elizabeth, there was the recognition by John the Baptist of the personhood of Jesus Christ. And if you are, have a background biology, you know that at this point, Jesus was three, four days perhaps within the womb of Mary in the form of what we call a zygote, Z-Y-G-O-T-E. And yet John the Baptist recognizes the personhood of Jesus at this point. He's already doing his work of being the forerunner, proclaiming Messiah, the Messiah Jesus. He's six months along. Meanwhile, Jesus in zygotic form is three, four days along. But not one person recognizes the other person within the womb. It's fascinating, isn't it? You can see the bearing upon our culture today. But furthermore, I want you to now notice what's behind them and what appears next on the screen. Because when you look up here, what you will find is you're standing with me, and I'm turning now and I'm looking at you because I'm examining your eyes. I like to look in the eyes, you see, and ponder what's there. And this takes your breath away. Because you see all these plaques? Each has, each is written in a different language. Oh, there's Spanish, there's Portuguese, there's even Latin, Greek, on and on. But each of these plaques is a plaque that contains the Magnificat. What you and I are exploring, studying, processing this morning. Yes, we're standing there in Ain Karam. takes your breath away. Well, for the sake of us English readers, there it is in English. And as you see that, you realize that what God is doing at this point is that he is communicating the gospel to all the people groups of the world right there outside of Jerusalem. Go into the world, make disciples of all the nations. 
Well, here you have full-spectrum discipleship on full display. In this case, coming from a very humble young lady we know as Mary, the mother of Jesus. She would have never thought, I'm sure, that her musical composition would be processed by people in a 2019 time period in all the languages of the world. But that's your sovereign God. So now he's working within wombs. He's working in unique settings. He's using all the various languages to relate to all the various people. But now it's time for you and me to look very carefully at this musical composition, isn't it? And what I want to do with you is to draw out four stanzas that are found here that I think each speak directly to your heart, my heart, and equips us to either come to know Jesus or if we know Jesus, to lead others to Jesus. And we're going to check them out together. Let's dig in. So the first comes out of verse 46 down through 48, first stanza, that as you and I, as we consider how to magnify the Lord, because magnicot and magnify come from the same word, I want you to begin and note with me the mercy our Lord has shown, and that's exactly what Mary is about to express. And she will express this personally. I want you to see how personal this is. She's got a personal relationship with her God. Do you? So now she has self-awareness, and so she looks into her interior and says, My soul, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, when you see the word magnify, what you and I have got to do at this point is to draw out the illusion that we sometimes utilize in our studies of the Scriptures. So if you're somewhat new here, let me draw it out for you once again. Let's say that in terms of magnification, you need some analogies. Go back to your days, and perhaps in junior high, and you began to think about magnification. Now, first of all, you might look into a microscope. And how does magnification work with a microscope? In that case, you take something which appears to be small, and it's enlarged. Now, connected to 2019 living and Advent season, these Christmas days, you're going to be hanging with people, you see, for whom God seems rather small. And you're wondering, well, how am I going to relate? Find your on-ramp. Get on the highway, conversational highway with them. Get into the express lane. Now, what I want you to do at this point with that person is to think microscopically. This person's got a small view of God but you want to magnify the Lord this week. In other words, what you're going to have to do is to find ways to be able to give them a greater, larger picture of who God is. J.B. Phillips once wrote the book, Your God is Too Small, which is the case for many people. And so we've got to use the microscopic approach for that person and to enlarge their view of God. And here's Mary, and she says, my soul magnifies. Now, she's not going to keep it within. She's going to express it from without. 
But for others, you're going to have to use what we'll call not the microscopic approach to take what's small and it becomes enlarged, but the telescopic approach where you take that which is distant and bring it close and personal. And for some, and there's a lot of religious people like this, they acknowledge God's existence, but for them God seems so distant, so removed, that they don't find a way of any establishing a connecting point in their life experience. What do you do? What do you do then? Now, hold up the telescope, so to speak, of the greatness of God, but he's a personal God, and make it personal for them. But they still have got to be willing to look in. I remember back in my days studying science, the story was told of Copernicus. And Copernicus looked through the, his telescope, and well, put it simply, he, he saw that you and I were not at the center of the universe. But his views were put down by the religious establishment of that day because they, they viewed science and religion as separate categories, which always makes me smile because I've got as much training of more in the sciences than in theology. But here, what we found in Copernicus's situation is that um, here the religionists, they viewed themselves as at the center of it all. Well, he wanted to be communicating what could be understood if they would only look through the telescope. Instead of communicating, they were busy excommunicating, putting him on the outskirts. Once Copernicus was in his laboratory with a friend and said, look into my telescope, see for yourself. Get this. His friend went and looked in because he said, I don't want the facts to refute my beliefs. You can't force a person to look in but you can live a life visually, communicate things verbally. Depending upon the relationship, try to figure out, is this microscopic and I'm going to have to take a small view of God in large? Or is this telescopic where I'm going to have to take a supposed distant God and bring close? It's going to be one or the other typically throughout the course of these coming days. So now, here's Mary, and thus far, we're still in that opening verse, and she is operating simultaneously, microscopically and telescopically. And there's the plaques all over the wall, and this is an extraordinary thing that this young lady from Nazareth would probably never have fully apprehended, comprehended, that in 2019, in Ain Karem, there would be people from all around the world uh, converging on the outskirts of Jerusalem to ponder what she had composed musically. My soul magnifies the Lord. Now, for those that are musically inclined or poetically inclined, notice the synonymous parallelism between that phrase and the next phrase that's found here. On one hand, my soul magnifies the Lord, and then in the next verse, my spirit rejoices in God. But I want you to see now, depending upon what religious background you came out of, what comes next. This is Mary saying, and my spirit rejoices in God. 
my Savior. For those that come out of a certain religious tradition, Catholicism, you've heard of the Immaculate Conception. It's the doctrine that Mary was conceived and born immaculate without the stain of original sin. It was defined that way by Pope Pius in 1884, reading his words, the Virgin Mary at the first moment of her conception by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God in virtue of the merits of Christ Jesus, the Savior of the human race was preserved immaculate from all stain of original sin. Fascinating. And I remember one time I was out for a run and when I was out for a run in Deerfield, Illinois, I was running and all of a sudden some guys that were studying for the priesthood were out for a run. And they caught up with me, which I guess is easy to do when I'm running. And uh, so we, we stopped and we began to talk, you see. And I, I'm trying to figure out my on-ramp. How am I going to carry on a conversation with these guys that are very, very, very religious? But you've got to bear in mind that it's more about a relationship than a religion. And so at this moment then, I, I said, hey, guys, about Mary and the Immaculate Conception argument, have you considered what she said in the Magnificat? Now, there we are with the traffic just buzzing up and down Half Day Road. And, uh, and I say, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Didn't even say, the Savior said, my Savior. In other words, she was a sinner in need of a Savior. And someone said, well, that's interesting. Uh, We've got to talk about this. And they began to run. And there I am standing there on Half Day Road. And, uh, yeah, they're outrunning me once again. But the point of the fact is that we need a Savior. And God chose this extraordinary sinner as the means of bringing the sinless Savior into the world to die for your sins, to die for my sins. And so here you have it where she's saying in verse 47 of her first stanza, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You see how personal that is? Now let me ask you, how personal is your Jesus? Have you put your faith in him as your Lord and as your Savior? We want you to be more than religious around here. We want the dynamic of the relationship that is found by putting faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. She takes a deep breath at this point, and now in verse 48, she gives you the reason why she would have expressed herself that way. Because in verse 48, she goes on to say, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. God is not looking upon a proud Mary. Now, I know at Notre Dame, when you're playing football, they will throw the Hail Marys. 
but what I want you to see here is that what Mary is doing is, in essence, bringing a hallelujah to Jesus. And what she will do now is she acknowledges her state. She's in a humble state, and yet God will sovereignly meet her at a point of need. God will sovereignly meet you at your point of need, wherever you are in life. She uses a past tense. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now, would you do this? Take your marker and draw a line back to verse 38. Where after Mary had found out that she was with child, what's her response? Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Mark that phrase. And compare it then, what she says in 47, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, not of 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. So now she connects this idea of Christ is Lord, she is servant. Therefore, she would have said to Gabriel, Let it be to me according to your word. You ever done that with God? Your work situation? Relationship? Family member? Let it be according to your word, man. And once she goes on public record with that statement, then and only then the angel departed from her, according to verse 38. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant and for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. What she has done at this point is demonstrated her rich Jewishness. Because in the Genesis account, what God will say to the patriarch, Abraham, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And now all the families of the earth are represented on that wall in Karam. That was the great commission of the Older Testament that the Jewish family was to be a means of outreach to the entire global community, that Jesus came into this world as a Jew to die for your sins and die for my sins, and behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, says Mary. And I don't know about you at this point, but my mind goes back to Charles Dickens. Christmas Carol, and in that very last paragraph within the Christmas Carol, it was said of Scrooge, who had a complete reversal in his approach to life. It was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well. And if any man alive possessed the knowledge, may that be truly said of us and all of us, and so as tiny Tim observed, God bless us. 
everyone. Now, what God does is that he desires to bless. So he creates the great reversal of coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And now what Mary is doing at this point is, in essence, pronouncing the blessing and stating and announcing the blessing. Behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. And in the process, by even saying that, she is being a blessing to the nations. And we've got full spectrum discipleship on our hands. This is cool. Now, as you and I, as we consider how to magnify the Lord, either microscopically, telescopically, depending upon the person we're dealing with, you know it, first of all, the mercy of our Lord. The mercy of our Lord is shown. It's been shown personally in 46 through 48. But now you're ready for the second stanza. As we consider how to magnify the Lord, note second of all, the attributes our Lord has revealed. And he does so generationally. So now you're up to verse 49. And not one, not two, but three attributes of God now stand out for you and for me. So when you're going through very extraordinarily difficult times in life, one of the things that you can do to set your mind right is to begin to focus upon the attributes of God. God is all-powerful. God is all-gracious. God is all-loving. God is all-true. God is all-just, and so on and so forth. Well, not one, not two. Three different attributes are found here in this second stanza that Mary has for you and for me. The first is this, in verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. So what she is saying at this point is that her Lord is all-powerful. And you and I are going to need that when we're going through rough stretches in life, and some even are going through this right now in the midst of the Advent season. And I dip into a scene from the days of the Civil War time period now, it's a story about Stonewall Jackson. His wife, Ellie, had given birth to a stillborn son. And then Ellie, well, she suffered an uncontrollable hemorrhage. And so in a brief time on a Sunday afternoon, Jackson's whole world caved in. Biography, I've got the biography at home. He was utterly crushed. What do you do? when the extremes of life thrust themselves directly in your life experience, you begin by turning to the attributes of God. The very next day, he wrote his sister, Laura. Get this. He told her he thought he could submit to anything if God strengthened him for it. And then there in the middle of his note, there's this moving one-liner where he says, Oh, my sister, Laura, oh, that you would have him as your God.
He's creating a magnificat in the midst of his own loss. Magnificats are not meant merely for the best of times. They're meant to be composed also in the most difficult of times. But you're the composer now, and you've got to express yourself. So no matter what you're going through, you're up to your second stanza. And after you've done it something personally, you're going to have to think something generationally. You're pondering the mercy of your Lord in the first stanza, but now you're pondering the attributes of your Lord in the second stanza. And for he who is mighty has done great things for me, but you don't leave it there because then there's the next attribute. Holy is his name. He's set apart. And then a third attribute. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She's taken with his might, taken with his holiness, taken with his mercy. And there now you see how God has so enveloped her, who she is what she's done, the mercy of God. There's an anecdote from the Civil War where after Lee's surrender, Lincoln was speaking to a large crowd from the balcony, and he told them about the policy he had mind, in mind for the South. And at the end of his speech, Senator Harlan asked, well, then what should we do with the rebels? And he was speaking, of course, in the north, and the crowd began to shout back, hang them, hang them, hang them. But then the person who was his closest counselor stood next to him and said, no, not hang them. Hang on to them. Isn't that like you got? See, now she is taken the might on one hand, the mercy on the other hand with holiness in the middle as the connecting point between the might and the mercy. And that's what separates God. That's what sets him apart, which is what the word holiness is all about. It, it separates the might and it separates the mercy because it's, it's God. And that's how much he loves you. You know what? You're up to your third stanza. Because not only do you see the mercy of our Lord has shown us in 46 through 48 and the attributes our Lord's revealed in 49 through 50, the first stanza dealing with things personally, the second dealing with things generationally. Here's your third stanza, that as you and I, as we consider how to magnify the Lord, well, note thirdly, the contrasts here our Lord has made. And what's interesting, Lee, now, not only personally and generationally, but now she expresses herself politically. Notice the contrast that we're going to draw. And I want you to see how the opposites are at work here. He, speaking of God, has shown strength with his arm, and the arm is typically used as the expression, the illustration of, power. 
He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And so now what this wise young lady is doing at this point is that she's using contrast to show how God works. And furthermore, what she is doing right now, as you will see as I penned in, your, in the second paragraph of your insert this morning, as Mary puts words to this musical composition of praise to God for the promise of a child we know as Jesus, she demonstrates great familiarity with the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, 1 through 10. Both women found themselves with child due to God's sovereign workings. Both women expressed their thankfulness in song. Both women dedicated their sons back to the Lord within the house of the Lord. Their similarities, not only similarities in their actions, but even in the content of, of what they've expressed. And so I've got now, I've got First Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Hannah's song in the Older Testament to see how it matches with Mary's song in the Newer Testament. And in verse 4 of 1 Samuel 2, here's Hannah breaking out and saying, The bowls of the mighty are broken, but the, the feeble bind on strength. And then in verses 7 and 8, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. What do you make of this? There is an extraordinary proverb. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. One version puts it this way. He who walks in the company of the wise grows wise. What Mary has done is that she needs a connection with other women. Now, in the present tense, she's got a connection with Elizabeth. But in the past tense, she goes back in time and she has informed herself of the musical composition of Hannah. And now bringing the wisdom of the past and the present together, she is equipping her soul to have still greater and greater impact upon those around her. That means then that what you and I need to do is to invest ourselves in the company of the wise. And some of those people have traveled in time in a prior era read their biographies. Others are traveling roads similar to you're traveling right now, like Elizabeth was with Mary. But find a way to keep company with the company of the wise. Draw it out. That's what Mary is doing at this point. And so she's not an echo of another voice, namely Hannah's. She's got her own voice. She doesn't live in the past, but she does learn from the past, as should you and as should I. 
And so now this remarkable young lady is articulating, he has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away. And so, yes, she is speaking politically at this point. And as she does so, what she's going to do is set the stage for having to deal with Herod when it came to the threat that Herod produced regarding the baby boys in the regions of Jerusalem and so forth. And ultimately prepare her heart for that time when Pontius Pilate and another Herod would have to issue an edict with regard to Jesus Christ. But she would have schooled herself, you see, in Psalm 144. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. So we've got to understand who is sovereign and who is not. For as we've seen in the book of Acts, we've got to understand uppercase versus lowercase authority. Then the realms of the political sphere and the governmental spheres of life. God is uppercase. The political sphere is lowercase. But when we reverse that, we have an enlarged government, an ever-expanded view that it is the be-all, end-all, and instead of freedom gained, it's freedom lost. Mary has put everything in proper perspective as a teenager. She sees the sovereignty of God here at work within her womb. She is operating microscopically and telescopically simultaneously. And you and I are viewing the wall and we're looking and we're pondering and we're reflecting as all the various languages of the world are communicating the same truth where she's talking about my Savior, you see. Uh, You take a deep breath because there's still one more stanza that Mary's composed for you. Luke loves his music. And so now the physician tells us that there is a fourth stanza to be dealt with. If you're going to magnify the Lord in this Christmas season, both microscopically and telescopically, consider how to magnify the Lord. Well, note, fourthly, the promise our Lord has kept. Because in verse 54, look at what it says. He has helped his servant Israel. Israel. And I was thinking about that while walking in the streets of Jerusalem and Altanin, Karam, and so on, in that, as we've noted many a time, generation by generation, the Jewish people have faced the possibility of extinction, annihilation. There are no Hittites, there are no Hivites, and so on, but... Look and behold, 1948, once again, we've got Israelites. God keeps his promises. That's the sovereignty of God. Where God made that statement, God made that promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. 
And then furthermore, what you and I find is that when you get to that powerful, powerful statement delivered to David via Nathan regarding what God's plan was to be able to create an eternal kingdom from the line of David. Hearing the words, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Then you think once again as we talk about the fact that when Mary would be standing at the cross of Jesus Christ, after processing the promise that had been delivered to her via Gabriel, that this one would be king of the Jews, and she's looking at the cross, and there is Jesus, her son, dying on that cross. What to do with the promise? And three days later, God raised Mary's son. from the grave. He has helped his servant Israel. And now you've come full scale. Didn't she talk about God's mercy previously? In 50, his mercy for those who fear him. Well, here you have it again in what they call poetically the inclusio in remembrance of his mercy. But then she goes for the jugular. Because in verse 55, she knows her history. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, recalling that tremendous statement that was given to Abraham and to his offspring, not for one generation, forever, And now you're thinking Jesus is alive, and you're thinking that the Jews were not annihilated. And all this comes together. All this makes sense. And so when in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God had said to Abram, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And there's Mary hearing from Elizabeth, blessed, not once, not twice, but three times. And now these plaques are all over the wall in Ein Karam, within Israel, not run by the Muslims, but by Israel, no longer part of the Ottoman Empire. It has its own statehood. God then breaks in in verse 3 of chapter 12 of Genesis and says, And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families, meaning all the ethnic groups of the earth, shall be blessed And you look up and you say, that's my ethnic group. That's my language. Those are my people. That's my plaque on that wall. And they're all saying the same thing. Jesus is to be my Savior. Is he yours? you put your faith and trust in Jesus, Savior and Lord. Do it. Let's stand together.
Father, now for the one who comes spiritually curious. Maybe the one who comes religiously involved but still lacks the personal relationship. I pray now that they will pray this prayer in their heart to you. God, I realize that I am a sinner. And on this Lord's Day just before Christmas, I put my faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. He is my Lord. Pray that they'll share that with those around them. Rebirth has occurred. And Father, for all who know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we realize you've spoken our language. You communicate, you connect. May we take what's here now and apply it, share it, use it, both microscopically and telescopically, in a way that's going to make a difference in people's lives. Equip us to do it today. Equip us to do it Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and every day. For your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.